Well, uh, I mentioned dear friends from Twin Lakes Fellowship. One of my very closest friends is uh, Jason Hilopoulos. Uh, Jason and I have known each other, I don't know how long, what would you say? A long time through Twin Lakes Fellowship. And about seven years ago, you'll hear a bit about this in due course, but about seven years ago, Jason uh, recognized that he and we all uh, needed to cultivate deeper pastoral relationships. And one of the things I love most about Jason is his intentionality in pursuing men, in mentoring them, in making connections. And Jason formed a group of about eight of us together, uh, pastors from around the PCA and around the country at slightly different stages with different type, uh, uh, types of ministries, some in a seminary context, different sizes of churches. Some of us are planting churches. Some of us, like me, are in churches that have been around for a long time. And uh, he brought us together. We've been together now for seven years, uh, engaged in fellowship regularly. I don't think there's a day go by when we don't text one another. We share questions and answers. Uh, we pray together. We laugh at and with each other a lot. And uh, it has been one of the greatest blessings of my life in ministry. And uh, the Lord has used Jason immensely in that respect. Jason is the current senior minister of University Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan, and uh, where he followed uh, Dr. Kevin DeYoung, who will be with us uh, later. And uh, Jason is the author of several books. His most recent book, which I don't think has hit the shelves yet, has it, is a children's book which uh, looks stunning, really, really beautiful, called The Promise. And uh, you want to make sure you get one of those. It's very simple, and the illustrations are extraordinary, and uh, will do the heart, your hearts and the hearts of your children and your children's ministry a great deal of good. I'm very excited to see how the Lord will use it and how the Lord will use our brother as he comes and speaks to us now. Jason. I'm a preacher, so I have to pray before I talk. So let's, let's pray one more time. Father, we are thankful for your goodness. Reminded of that as we sit here this afternoon, that we have the freedom to do such, and that we know true freedom in Christ our Lord. We pray that by the work of your Spirit, you would be with us over these next minutes, that what would be helpful for each of us as we sit here or as we live stream this, that you would minister to us accordingly, that you would stir us by your Spirit, that you would fix our eyes upon Christ and a life lived for him and for his glory. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the assignment given to me for this conference was Calvin's Company of Pastors Lessons on Ministerial Fellowship from 16th Century Geneva. And I was uh, happy that John uh, assigned this topic to me because I have been convinced, especially over the last decade or so, that ministerial fellowship is one of the greatest gifts a pastor can enjoy, and it is one of the most essential elements for a life 
a life of ministry. Listening to a biography about Winston Churchill right now, and Churchill one time when he was standing before a reporter, he asked the reporter a question, and the question was this. He said, do you know why I hate those Nazis? Very Churchillian. He wasn't looking for a reply. Uh, He was going to go on and give the answer. uh, And he went on to say this. Because when they fight, they do so with a frown. When our boys fight, they do so with a grin. We all need soldiers. We need fellow soldiers fighting alongside of us that are engaged in the same battle as us and equally happy with us to be serving the way that we are serving. It provides encouragement, provides support, it provides accountability. This is the essence of ministerial fellowship, what I want to speak to you about this afternoon. I look at our own denomination for most of us in this room, the PCA, and I look beyond that to the greater reformed world, and I look beyond that to Uh, the evangelical church, and I think there are a few things that seem more necessary in the moment than an emboldened, holy pastorate. Men that are laboring with a smile in a lifetime of ministry for the glory of our King and for the good of His people. And there are few things, at least in my humble opinion, that rival ministerial fellowship and importance for living a life of such ministry. Some of you may say, well, that feels like a little bit of an overstatement, and I don't think it is. I've often told others uh, from a human perspective, if it wasn't for the ministerial friends that I have, uh, I doubt that I would still be in the ministry. Uh, It is those men over the years that when my arms were falling, have helped to prop them up when I have been discouraged, have come along with an encouraging word. They have come along with wisdom when I needed wisdom. They have helped me to laugh at myself and not take myself too seriously. They have also pressed in when I'm not taking myself serious enough. Uh, And we all need such men in our lives that are in the ministry. Obviously, I'm speaking to pastors this afternoon, but I believe that if you're a congregant, you are a deacon, or you are a ruling elder, or you are a staff church member, uh, that there are lessons here for you as well to apply. So I want to start in Geneva. That's my task this afternoon. Calvin had such a ministerial fellowship in Geneva, but not always. When Calvin returned to Geneva from Strasbourg in 1541, he immediately set about the task of getting pastors, recruiting pastors for the city churches and for the churches that were in the surrounding countryside. You had those three principal city churches of St. Pierre and uh, St. Gervais and Madeline, and then the other churches that were outside the city of Geneva proper. And he recruited a number of men to fill those pastorates. And those men that he recruited there in 1541, they didn't turn out so well. They were not great recruits. Calvin himself offered a blunt assessment just the following March, about six months later, when he wrote to a friend this. 
He said, our other colleagues are more a hindrance than a help to us. He went on to detail how. He said, they are proud and self-conceited, have no zeal and less learning. But what is worst of all, I cannot trust them, even though I very much wish that I could. Scott Manich, in his wonderful book on Calvin's Company of Pastors, spoke about Calvin in this regard and was talking about some of the letters that Calvin had written about some of these early pastors to his friends Veray and Pharaoh. And he wrote them this, and he said this, The city minister, Philippe de Ecclesia, was a poor preacher. You'd think with a name like that, he'd be a better preacher. And he is unpopular with the people. The minister, Pierre Blanchet, was engaged in a bitter dispute with his brother-in-law, Sebastian Castiello, that has become the talk of the town. Blanchet was showing tendencies which are not very satisfactory, Calvin noted. The other ministers were making progress in their preaching, though two of them displayed an unhealthy penchant for vainglory. As for the pastor, Louis Trepereau, he has more levity and less self-control in his conversation and behavior than becomes a minister of the gospel. And Calvin also reported that the pastor of Jussie, Nicholas Vandert, had unwisely criticized Geneva's magistrates in a judicial case and would soon be deposed from his post his likely replacement, Henry de Lamar, he said, was scarcely better. Not exactly a great bunch of men to recruit to be the first pastors in Geneva when he returned in the surrounding area. Of those 10 ministers Calvin recruited there in the early 1540s, they will average only three years in the ministry. And you don't have to imagine much to think about the impact this has upon the church in Geneva and the surrounding area. It doesn't make for a very healthy church. But here's where we turn the corner. In the following years, the ministers Calvin recruits from 1545 to 1559 will last an average of 14 years in the pastorate. And the effect upon the churches there and their health was incalculable. It wasn't just the longevity that these men served in the pastorate, but also the godliness of these men. We need men who are willing to stand in the storm and not flee when the storm comes, but we also need men who do so in holiness. And these men on the whole did so. Now, the question becomes is what can we attribute this to? And surely there are many factors. The caliber of the men recruited was surely better. The circumstances were surely different and possibly better. But it seems no mere coincidence that it was also in the mid-1540s that Calvin began with the rest of these ministers, the company of pastors. What was the company of pastors? It was a, a fraternal that eventually became a kind of ecclesial institution. It was a gathering, a gathering that happened every Friday morning for a few hours, most likely at 7 or 9 in the morning following the worship service. The pastors of the city were required to come and attend, and then the pastors that were in the surrounding rural areas were to attend as they had opportunity to do so. 
And they would gather together, these pastors and a few theologians, and they would meet for around three hours every Friday. And when they met, they met together as equals. They were all men of the word and sacraments. And so when they gathered together, they each had one vote, and they met as equals, though Calvin, from the beginning, was the moderator. Later, others would become the moderator of the company, and he had quite a bit of influence within the company. But in principle, they were all equals. And they would gather together, and they would transact the business of the local churches. They would discuss theological issues together, and in this way, they would sharpen one another. They would work through controversial doctrines together. They would make pronouncements on theological and practical matters with one voice together. These topics, they could span the range of issues in the spectrum. In 1546, the company will produce a list of names that are good names for parents to give to their children upon their baptism when they brought them forward. You say, well, that sounds pretty petty and pedantic, but uh, it was a very practical implication, implication of something that they were wrestling with theologically. It is that these parents were often naming their children after Roman Catholic saints. And so the company put out a list of mostly biblical names for parents to name their children with. It's a practical solution to a theological problem. They will wrestle with even more serious theological issues as a company. For example, on the morning of October 16, 1551, a former Carmelite monk turned Protestant, Jerome Bolsec, decided to attack Calvin's doctrine of double predestination what they called the congregation, which was a gathering of these men right before they went into their company. Bosek made his case in front of the rest, calling Calvin's doctrine of double predestination such a god, he said, would be a tyrant, indeed an idol, if such a doctrine was believed. I don't know what makes you wake up in the morning and think this is a good day to attack Calvin on double predestination. But it was not a good decision on Bosek's part. Calvin then stood up and he lectured for an hour from the scriptures and quoting church father after church father, especially Augustine, proving his point about double predestination. That bad day didn't end there for Bolsec, as he was then later arrested by the magistrates as he left the meeting and was put in the city prison and spent a month there as a visitor until he was eventually banished from Geneva. So bad decision. But the company worked through theological issues together. They worked through practical issues for the benefit of their own souls, for the benefit of the congregations that they served. They also recruited and sent out pastors together. This will occupy much of their time. They helped one another have a view outside of their local context and serve the greater church in this way. They also provided accountability for one another. They would circle the room and they would press into one another's lives and engage one another about their own spiritual holiness and their commitment to the ministries that they had been called to. In addition, they sought to maintain contact with 
the bodies of other Reformed congregations outside of Geneva throughout Europe. This was a true ministerial fellowship. They are wrestling together through personal and practical and doctrinal and ecclesial issues in friendship as equals together. And it seems to be no coincidence that the pastors of Geneva, after the start of the company of pastors, lasted almost five times longer than the men that were pastoring before the start of the company of pastors. Surely this is not the only reason, but it was surely a reason. This company was usually about 20 men, though there were about 120 men that would cycle through the company over the years. And what should stand out to you and I is that this was a weekly meeting. This was something that became an essential part of each of their ministries. One finds it hard to imagine the impact on history if the ministers of Geneva had not been committed to one another in a company like this. I'm always a little suspect of statistics, but the Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development reported a number of years ago, this was pre-COVID, that 35 to 40 percent of ministers last less than five years in the ministry today. 35 to 40 percent. I don't know if that's right. Seems pretty right by my estimation. Some, some studies show that 60 to 80 percent of those who enter the ministry will no longer be serving in the ministry 10 years later. And whether all of that is correct, I don't know, but I do know that it shows, at least to some degree, that there's a great struggle to persevere in the ministry. And the effect upon the church can be disastrous. Now, some men, I think, should have never been put into the pastorate. It's a part of what Dr. Strain mentioned this morning. We have to do a better job of vetting in our ordination process. But most aren't leaving because they should have never been in the pastorate. They leave because of discouragement or because of loneliness or because of sin or because of tiredness or because of conflict. So all this to say this, to get to this point. Pastors, you need a ministerial fellowship. You need a group of men that will lift your arms when they get tired. You need a band of brothers that will encourage you, that will exhort you, that will challenge you. One of his letters, Calvin writes about his sadness that the gospel has not spread as far as it should. And he said this, Nothing retards so much the progress of Christ's kingdom as the paucity of ministers. Too many don't make it for the long haul, and too many don't make it well for the long haul. And that has a disastrous effect upon the bride of Christ. You need a ministerial fellowship. 
It's one of the greatest gifts, pastors, you can enjoy and one of the most essential elements for not fading or falling away, but maintaining a life, a life of ministry. It is good for the church. You and I have a calling to serve this bride of Christ and to serve her well. Bruce Gordon, in his magisterial biography of Calvin, just to remind you, Calvin is a man of great gifts, uh, greater gifts than most of us in this room, all of us in this room. Bruce Gordon said this, Calvin sought a circle of friends with whom he could share ideas and a common commitment to the gospel. From his student days, Calvin relied on such friends, and although he often opined about the burden laid upon him, he never expressed a desire for solitude. Friendship and company were crucial, and he desired and sought the presence of others. Now, the Lord has given many of us godly, wonderful wives. We would be at a loss without them. Calvin was blessed with such a godly, wonderful wife. Bruce Gordon will often talk of her, Idolette, as Calvin's silent partner in ministry, and you get a sense of how important Idolette was to his ministry when she dies, and, Idolette, or, and Calvin pins some letters to his friends about Idolette, and he says this in one of his letters. He says, the best possible life companion has been taken away from me. If something would have happened to me, she would gladly have shared exile or poverty with me, and even death. As long as she lived, she was my faithful co-laborer in ministry. She never put the slightest obstacle in my way. Calvin was blessed, blessed with a godly, good, faithful wife, and yet he still sought out a company of pastors. He also had a number of other friends outside of his company who were dear friends, men like Pierre Veret and William Farrell and Philip Melanchthon and Bullinger and others, all important. Vandenberg, I think, catalogs these relationships so well in that book, The Friends of Calvin, just a delightful read. And yet, he still saw the need for the company of pastors. This was not... His exclusive circle of friendship and fellowship, he had others, but it was an essential circle. These were men who knew him, men who pressed into his life, men that he could press into their lives, men that he could work through theological and practical things together with, and it blessed him, it blessed them, and it blessed their churches. Ideally, most of us would enjoy a company in our presbyteries. I think we all need to labor to see that happen, doing that in my presbytery. But that takes time to develop, and sometimes it isn't possible. I remember going to Dr. Doug Kelly one day when we were at Twin Lakes, and I was a young church planter, and I said to Dr. Kelly, I said, Dr. Kelly, what advice would you give to a young church planter and he looked at me and he said, start a prayer meeting yesterday. Well, you need to have started a church ministerial, a minister's fellowship yesterday. Yesterday. You don't have time to wait. 
You have other friendships. You have your presbytery. You have your wife. It's not mutually exclusive with these. If you allow me to speak personally to this, it hit me, as David pointed out, seven or so years ago. It hit me. It was a matter of just a couple of months where I watched four dear brothers, all men that I loved, all men that I respected. Most of those men would have been at this meeting, and I watched all four of them fall morally for want of care. It started small, brush of a hand, looking at an internet site. Three of those four are now out of the ministry. Three of the four lost their wives, were separated from their children, they lost their reputations, they lost their churches, they lost their friends. One sits in prison still today. It's for a lack of care. It was then, I was thinking about that, and I was looking at their lives, and I thought, one thing was common among all of these men from what I could tell, and I knew them each pretty well, no brother truly knew them. They had acquaintances, but no brother who walked alongside of them and no brother who spoke into their lives. My fellow brothers in the ministry, you need men that will speak into your lives. Ministry is not meant to be a Lone Ranger affair. It's not even meant to be a Lone Ranger and Tonto affair. You need a posse and that will press in. Hit me personally that day that the pressures of ministry and the temptations of sin and the discouragement of life and the conflicts in the church could just as easily bring me down. So intuitively, I knew that I needed a company, though I had not read about Calvin's company of pastors before that. So I contacted seven fellow pastors in the PCA, and I said, this is what I need. You know, to a man, every single one of them said, I need this too. The eight of us formed a company. Will this keep all of us going? I don't know. Will it keep all of us from falling into sin? Not necessarily, but it helps. It's not perfect. Neither was Calvin's company of pastors but it helped. I want to keep close to Christ. I want to keep falling more in love with Him. I want to continue to grow in holiness. I want to serve His bride well. I want to finish the race. And these brothers helped me to do that. Again, He'll grant me some personal leeway here. I want to tell you what we do. This is simply a model. This is not necessarily the answer. But we don't live in 16th century Geneva, and so it can't quite look like what Calvin experienced there in Geneva. We all live in different parts of the country, so what does it look like for my company? Well, we do three things together. We meet, we pray, and we text. Calvin couldn't do one of those. He could the other two. 
we meet. We meet together three times a year in person. We meet at General Assembly, we meet at Twin Lakes Fellowship, and then for two or three days, we meet together on retreat each year. GA and Twin Lakes, we get together there and just have a meal together at both of those places, and it's just fun hangout time. This is just brothers enjoying each other's company. The retreat, though, those two or three days, that's very intentional. When we get together for those two or three days each year, the time is spent pressing into one another's lives, spent asking the hard questions, and spent praying for each other individually, a season of prayer for each brother as we're gathered together. We also virtually meet every month. Uh, we started this before Zoom was a cool thing or had become an old thing. Uh, but we started meeting together every month over Zoom, and we do that for an hour together. On these calls, we hash through theological issues together, surely not as well as Calvin's company of pastors, but we do our best. We talk through pastoral issues together and talk through personal issues together. Each call, again, only lasts for an hour because we need to end it because it's a bunch of pastors and they'll keep talking. But we all have an hour to spare. We meet. We also pray. We pray when we meet. We pray on these calls. Maybe most importantly, we commit to praying for one another. I know that I have brothers that are scattered throughout this country that are praying for me regularly. They're praying for my soul, they're praying for my family, they're praying for my ministry. That is of great encouragement to me. When we have those moments, a pastoral crisis or a hard day or a big session meeting or one of the members of our church is in a desperate situation, we send out a specific prayer request. And we know that seven other brothers are specifically praying for them. We meet, we pray, and we text. Calvin wrote letters, which are surely better, Having a text thread together for us has been a game changer for our company. We have a quick prayer request, the text goes out. We have a theological question, the text goes out. We have a pastoral question, the text goes out. I was reveling the other morning with uh, brothers on text thread. I was. It was early in the morning. It was, I think, 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning, my time, and I was wrestling with a theological question, and so I just sent out a question about that, that doctrine or loci of theology. And within a half hour, uh, I had a list of book recommendations, I had links to online articles, and then I had good pastor theologians weighing in and giving me their best educated answer on the fly. Look, that surpasses Calvin's Geneva. In a half hour, you need ministerial fellowship. It can be one of the greatest gifts a pastor can enjoy and one of the most essential elements for a life of ministry. Now I know it's not easy to pursue. We quickly find good reasons not to do something like this. So let me try and answer three of the most 
offered objections to this. The first is, I can't afford the time. My friends, you can't afford not to make the time. Calvin's company met every week for a few hours. They made the time and everyone benefited. I want to read you here just an extended quote from Manich about Calvin and his company of pastors and what they would engage in each week. Now, they were on a different stratosphere than all of us in this room, besides maybe Dr. Beakey. Uh, but they, what they did was unbelievable, and it always feels a little bit like a gut punch uh, when you read something like this, but it does give some perspective. This is what Manich said. By the 1550s, the team of ministers was required by city statute to conduct a total of 33 worship services each week, including services every weekday morning, the day of prayer on Wednesday morning, and three sermons on Sunday. The chief pastors in the city, men like Calvin, Cop, De Galars, Beza, bore the heaviest responsibility for these preaching assignments, delivering as many as eight or nine sermons every fortnight. That's every 14 days. He continues, ministers who possessed more modest homiletic gifts preach less frequently, but all pastors were expected to deliver a couple of sermons each week. And it goes on to say, in addition to sermons and worship services, Geneva's ministers, get ready, were expected to engage in a variety of other pastoral activities each week. On Thursday at noon, they met in the consistory for several hours to address disciplinary cases. On Friday mornings, the ministers convened in the auditoire for the weekly congregation, a meeting of clergy and interested lay people to discuss questions of biblical exegesis and theology. The ministers' regular schedule was further crowded with weddings and baptisms, household visitations, spiritual counsel of parishioners, personal study, and sermon preparation. In addition, many of Geneva City ministers were assigned ancillary duties related to religious education or pastoral care in the city. Some served as military chaplains or professors at the academy. Others were appointed to visit the hospital and prison or to administer the city's bourse for poor students and immigrants. And on top of everything else, nearly one in six of Geneva's ministers was a published author. What have you been doing with all your life? Seriously, though, these were mere men. And as men, they understood that their gathering and ministerial fellowship was not an ancillary part of their ministry. It was essential to it. They made time for it. We need men to walk with. Second objection, I don't know such men. Well, find them. Find them. You need at least three brothers to walk alongside of you. They might have different roles. They don't all need to be perfect. None of them will be perfect. One might be a rock-solid theologian who is always ready with theological answers to questions. Another has wisdom about pastoral issues. Another has the courage to press into your life with the hard questions. And all combined together, you will serve one another well. You don't need the perfect man. You just need some men who are differently gifted alongside of you. 
And here's news, they need you. Find them, pursue them, and gather some of them. This is not sinful weakness. It's godly wisdom. Paul tells the church in Philippi that he desires to send Timothy to them, but just can't part with him yet. Why? Because he needs him. He doesn't send, he does send Epaphroditus, but listen how he speaks of Epaphroditus. He says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. In Colossians, he will write of Aristarchus and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, calling them his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And then he says this of them. He says, they have been a comfort to me. When writing to Titus, he asks him to come to him soon. Why? Because he says he has need of him. But that's not enough. He also asks for him to send Zenos, a lawyer, and Apollos to come as well when Titus comes. When he writes to Philemon, he will speak of Onesimus as his very heart. This is godly wisdom. We were not meant to labor alone. Calvin echoes these sentiments often when he speaks of his friends in his letters. Writing to a Frenchman who was concerned upon hearing about Beza getting sick, Calvin will write back to this Frenchman about Beza, and he will say this. I was informed the day before that he had been seized with the plague. I was therefore not only troubled about the danger he was in, but from my very great affection for him, I felt almost overpowered as if I was already lamenting his death. He's concerned that the church might lose Beza because Beza is such a wonderfully gifted man for the ministry. And then he goes on to say this of himself. I would be destitute of human feeling did I not return the affection of one who loves me with more than a brother's love and reveres me like a very father. This is close brotherhood. It's been fostered in the company of pastors. It is not sinful weakness, but godly wisdom that seeks company in ministry. If you don't have men like this, you find them. Third, This objection, I think, is not something we will readily admit, but there is that obstacle of pride which says that we are beyond the need for such a group. You aren't. I don't know each of you, and you aren't. You're not beyond the need for others to speak into your life, whether that is an encouragement or whether that is an accountability. Nicholas Collendon, who was a contemporary of Calvin's and wrote one of the first biographies of Calvin, said this, which I found shocking when I first read it. He said that Calvin would at times find relaxation by playing games, such as tossing a disc or playing keys. Who would have ever thought Calvin played games? Don't know what keys or discs are, but I bet he was competitive at them. Do you know why he played? Hollenden makes this interesting comment that it was usually, quote, in response to the urging of his friends. 
Calvin, you need to relax. Go play some discs. We need encouragement from friends. We also need accountability, every one of us. In 1572, there was a pastor in the rural area outside of Geneva. He was tired, he was worn out from ministry. And so he decided that he was going to pack up his house and that he was going to move his family back to France from where they came. And so Beza and the company of pastors heard this rumor, so as a group, they went out and confronted this pastor. He had a long list of reasons. His health was poor. His mother-in-law was ill. He had family business back in France. He also confessed that he had grown weary, and he had grown angry, and he had grown frustrated with this congregation. The company tried to hold him accountable. They commented to him, quote, that your ministry should be 100 times more precious to you than all of these things. We need such brothers. We need men who will remind us of our office, our duties, and the call that we have upon our lives to holiness, as Dr. Beakey addressed. And that requires men knowing you and who know you will take you aside when you want to quit or when you're wandering or when you've grown cold in your love for Christ or cold in your love for his people. You need that smiling brother along your side. But I want to end with this, talking about the bigger picture. This isn't just about you. This isn't just about me. This isn't just about pastors. It's about the church that we serve. It's about the world that we serve in. I think as we gather here these couple of days, I think, what is it, if we were to put it before all of us, what is it that we all desire more than anything else? And my guess is that we could pretty quickly arrive at the same thing, maybe articulate it in different ways. It's that we would see a great work of God in our generation. We want to see him move, and we want to see him stir in our own denomination, our own beloved denomination, in our own country, around the world. All that afflicts the church, all that afflicts our family, all that afflicts our homes, all that afflicts our society, finds its answer in Christ. Christ is what is needed. We want to see Christians have greater delight and love and appreciation for the glory of their Savior. And all we desire to see thousands and tens of thousands, and dare we pray hundreds of thousands and millions come to saving faith in our generation. Great work of the Spirit. I pray, like many of you, for revival in our generation. Long to see that mighty movement of the Spirit, what our forefathers would often call plentiful effusion of the Spirit, or as Murray said in his great book on revival, the Spirit given in exceptional measure. This is what we need. We need a work of God. 
And this is what I know, is that the Lord employs and chooses to use what we will call the ordinary means of grace, the Word and prayer. But here's what's especially fascinating and interesting in light of this this afternoon is that he almost always chooses to use a fellowship of men. John Witherspoon, when he was president of Princeton, used to say over and over to his students that when the church prospers, it was noticeable that, quote, her leaders flourish in clusters, each helping one another. This has almost always been the case, whether biblically or historically. that leaders flourish in clusters, each helping one another, and the church prospers. I want to see a mighty work of God in our day. This is one of the places to start. This is what happened in Geneva. And what happened in Geneva impacted the world. The world. And much of that is owed to the company of pastors. In Geneva, you had a ministerial fellowship of men that were committed to the Lord, experimental religion, sound theology, preaching of the word, prayer, the church, and one another. By God's grace, that blessing flowed out from that band, from that company, from Geneva to the world. Between 1555 and 1563, the register of the Company of Pastors in Geneva recorded 88 pastor missionaries sent by them to Roman Catholic France. And yet most scholars believe this is only a partial list. Many of the names went unrecorded because when you went to Catholic France, you were putting your life on the line. There was a death warrant out for you. Many of these men did not survive long at all, and so their names weren't recorded to keep them anonymous. And so many scholars estimate that as many as 165 missionary pastors were sent from Geneva to Catholic France in even a single year. But as David Calhoun commented, the degree of commitment of Calvin and the pastors of Geneva to this missionary outreach is nothing less than amazing. It seems to have occupied most of the company's time from 1557 through 1562. Practically every page of the register is devoted to lists of elected men and to various matters pertaining to assignments and continuing contact with them. And here's the result. In 1555, at the beginning of missionaries being sent in to Roman Catholic France, it's believed that there was only one established and organized Reformed church in the entire country. Seven years later, it's estimated that around 2,150 congregations with three million members existed in France. That work of God flowed from Geneva and directly from the company of pastors. We could go on to mention the mission to Brazil, the publishing of Reformed literature in English and German and Greek and Italian and Spanish and Scottish vernacular. The 1,500 students who studied at the Academy of Geneva and then spread out to 
cross the European continent with their knowledge of the Protestant faith, all of this seemingly impossible from a human perspective apart from the fellowship and the mutual commitment enjoyed in the company of pastors. It began with them. Brothers, the field of labor is great. It is great with trials. It is great with temptations. It is also great with kingdom potential. And you're not meant to labor alone. Find a Philemon, Paul says, refreshes the saints. Find a Barnabas, that son of encouragement. Find men that will walk with you. Who knows? Who knows? It could be from one of our companies that spark of revival fire is ignited that spreads like wildfire throughout this country and throughout our denomination and throughout the world. I hope you pray and believe such a thing can happen in our generation. And this has to be one of the things that we pursue to see it happen. Ministerial fellowship is one of the greatest gifts a pastor can enjoy, and one of the most essential elements for a life ministry. Let's pray. Our Father, we're told we have not because we ask not. So we ask. We ask that you would do a mighty work in our generation. We would see the outpouring of your spirit in a way that we haven't seen for generations in this land. We pray that you would begin with us where we are lukewarm, where there is sin that is being entertained in our hearts. There is a lack of love for the people of God. There's a lack of love for the lost. There's a lack of love and delight in you. Would you refine us? Would you shape and mold us more into the likeness of our Savior? I pray that you would give each of us brothers, if we are a brother, and sisters, if we are a sister, to walk alongside of us. People that we can truly trust, that we can press into their lives, but who will equally press into our lives. Oh, we desire to be more like the one we love. That is our heart's desire. So we pray that you would provide. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior.